welcome back to that's what i call jones history i'm your host christina we're here to discuss part four of scotland a brief history we're going to be discussing uh the 17th and 18th century i do believe this will be the last in our uh scotland series and then at the end we'll discuss some notable black and african faces in Scottish culture as well before we get started wherever you're listening to this podcast Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify go down to the rating section drop some stars leave a review my social media will be there as well remember to like share and subscribe and if you want to send any feedback or have any ideas on uh, subjects you would like to see me explore and us to explore together blackercouch at gmail.com let's go scotland was a poor rural agricultural society with a population of 1.3 million in 1755 although scotland lost home rule the union allowed it to break free of a stillifying system and open the way for a scottish enlightenment as well as a great expansion of trade and increase in opportunity and wealth edinburgh economist adam smith concluded in 1776 that by the union with england the middling and inferior ranks of people in scotland gained a complete deliverance from the power of an aristocracy which had always before oppressed them end quote historian jonathan israel holds that the union quote provided a decisive catalyst politically and economically end quote by allowing ambitious scots entry on an equal basis to a rich expanding empire and its increasing trade scotland's transformation into a rich leader of modern industry came suddenly and unexpectedly in the next 150 years following its union with england in 1707 and its integration with the advanced english and imperial economies the transformation was led by two cities that grew rapidly after 1770 glasgow on the river clyde was the base for the tobacco and sugar trade with an emerging textile industry Edinburgh was the administrative and intellectual center where the scottish enlightenment was chiefly based by the start of the 18th century a political union between scotland and england became politically and economically attractive especially since the two countries had been under one rule promising to open up the much larger markets of england as well as those of the growing english empire with economic stagnation since the late 17th century which was particularly acute in 1704 the country depended more and more heavily on sales of cattle and linen to england who used this to create pressure for a union the scottish parliament voted on january 6 of 1707 by 110 to 69 to adopt the treaty of union it was also a full economic union indeed most of its 25 articles dealt with economic arrangements for the new state known as great britain it added 45 scots to the 513 members of the house of commons and 16 scots to the 190 members of the house of lords and ended the scottish parliament it also replaced the scottish systems of currency taxation and laws regulating trade with laws made in london scottish law remained separate from english law and the religious system 
was not changed. England had about five times the population of Scotland at the time and about 36 times as much wealth. Given the centuries of hostility between Scotland and England with warfare, even in the 17th century under a shared Stuart king, the union of the two kingdoms seems to come with surprising suddenness. It has been under discussion for a considerable time for James the sixth, or is it the fourth? No, it's the sixth. And the first tries to achieve it after inheriting the English throne in 1603. But the idea meets with little favor, although imposed during the Commonwealth until the 18th century. The motivation in 1707, as stated before, is all about the money. Scotland has recently suffered a disastrous failure in setting up a colony in 1698 in Darien on the Isthmus of Panama. By the time the experiment is expanded or abandoned in 1700, it is estimated to have cost 200,000 euro and some 2,000 lives. Tariff-free access to all English markets, both in Britain and in the developing colonies, seems commercially a rather more attractive option. No straightforward connection can be drawn between the Union and the exceptional 18th century flowering of the intellectual life known as the Scottish Enlightenment, which we briefly um, pointed out to before. Absence of civil strife, however, permitted the best minds to turn if they choose or chose from politics and its 17th century twin religion. And few of the best minds from 1707 onward were in fact directly concerned with politics. Philosophy in which the 18th century Scotland excelled was a proper concern for a country where for generations minds had been sharpened by theological debate. Scottish culture remained distinctive and distinctively European in orientation. Some additional events that led up to this, Charles Edward Stewart seems to be offered an unrepeatable opportunity when France declares war on Britain in 1744 during the War of Austrian Succession. He participates in early French plans for invasion of Britain. These are soon abandoned, but events in 1745 with Britain losing to France in the campaign on the continent convinced the young prince that he stands a chance of success in Scotland even without foreign support. Charles lands in the hybrids or hebrids early in August 1745. The Jacobite Highland clans rally to his cause and the prince marches south gathering forces as he goes. On September 16th he enters Edinburgh. On the next day he proclaims his father James the 8th of Scotland however it was only a week within the week that he had to defend this claim on the battlefield at Preston Pans on September the 21st he met and defeated an army led by Sir John Cope after this victory news of which prompts the recall of Cumberland and his army from the Netherlands Charles marches south to invade England he takes Carlisle in November and by early December has progressed as far south as Derby. At this point, his followers lose heart. 
They are too far from safety in Scotland, and the promised French support has not materialized. On December 6, Charles heads back north, pursued now by the Duke of Cumberland. The two sides finally meet in a pitched battle on 16th April 1746, which is very well known in Scotland as Culloden, the Battle of Culloden. Charles has marched his force of about 5,000 Scots through the previous night in an attempt to surprise the larger army, some 9,000 men of the Duke of Cumberland. The battle on an exposed moor lasts only an hour, but the Scots are completely routed. It is the end of the Jacobite cause. A price of 30,000 euros is put on the pretender's head, but he manages to escape back to France after five months in hiding, thanks to the romantic intervention of Flora MacDonald. Cumberland acquires the nickname Butcher because of his brutal persecution of the Jacobite sympathizers, and the government introduces severe measures to pacify the Highlands. Between 1715 and 1782, the abortive Jacobite uprising makes the Whig government and the Hanoverian monarch well aware of the Highlands of Scotland uh, and that they require control, careful control. The most important response to the challenge is a program of road building intended purely to facilitate the rapid movement of troops and uh, the new roads are incidentally of great economic benefit to Scotland. The task of building them is entrusted to George Wade, who is Commander-in-Chief of North Britain from 1724 to 1740. He supervises the construction of 240 miles of roads across the Highlands to a very high standard for the period, together with some 40 bridges. After the much more serious rebellion of 1745, the British government takes more punitive measures. Estates are fortified, Highlanders, Highlanders are not allowed to carry arms, and in the most symbolic and widely remembered gesture, gesture the wearing of the highland dress in tartan is forbidden in the 1747 act of proscription the restriction was lifted in 1782 the crisis of 1745 however even though in the nature of a civil war is used by the hand Hanoverian majority to stir up a fever fever of national sentiment. The first recorded occasion of a British crowd singing the national anthem is at Drury Lane in September of 1745, a month after the young pretender has landed in Scotland. On this occasion, George, George Wade's efforts in Scotland earn him a place in the lyrics. The crowd fervently sing out their hope that the famous general will like a torrent rush rebellious scots to crush and thus will confound the politics fresh their knavish tricks the crisis was never as great as such dramatic treatment makes it seem the majority of scots living in increasingly prosperous existence in the more comfortable lowlands have little sympathy with wild and dangerous highland schemes they are busy turning indenburg into one of the most civilized of 18th century cities in both architectural and intellectual terms which is why it's no surprise it's the birthplace of the home of the enlightenment itself the scottish educational system its foundations so securely laid throughout the previous century made possible this extraordinary cultural outpouring the scottish universities enjoyed their heyday 
Annenberg being notable for medicine and preeminent in most other subjects as well. Gradually, the regents who taught students throughout their university course were replaced by professors specializing in single subjects. That students seldom troubled to graduate was of little disadvantage in an age when appointments depended on patronage. Not bound by a rigid curriculum, students were able to indulge Scott's traditionally wide intellectual curiosity by attending lectures in a variety of subjects. Scientific study was encouraged and practical applications of discoveries were given due place. Francis Holm, professor of Materia Medica at Endenburg, studied bleaching processes and plant nutrition. James Watt, instrument maker to the University of Glasgow for a time, was encouraged by the university to work on steam engine or on the steam engine to which he was able to make crucial improvements. Ghost ride the whip. Ghost ride the whip. Ghost ride the whip. Ghost ride the whip. The confidence of Scotland during the Scottish Enlightenment is well suggested in the magnificent new town built to the north of medieval Indenburg. A valley and a lake separate the crowded ancient city on the slope of the hill up to the castle from open fields on the adjacent ridge. This is, of course, we're talking about Newtown. In 1766, it is decided to drain the lake to facilitate access across the river. Designs are invented or invited for a new residential area on the other side. The competition is won by a 22-year-old local architect, James Craig, who submits a simple rectilinear plan of streets, three streets, Prince's Street, George Street, Queen Street running parallel to the valley and terminating in two squares. Work begins in 1767 and continues for a half a century with different architects all conforming to a style of restrained classism, uh, classicism, and together creating a masterpiece of town planning. The peak of elegance is Charlotte Square, situated at the west end of George Street and named after George III's queen. The square is designed in 1791 by Robert Adam and the buildings on the north side started just before his death in 1792 fulfill his intentions in every detail. This new modern Indenburg is a perfect metropolis for Scottish gentlemen, but many such gentlemen at home on their estates are now engendering future trouble by an equivalently modern approach to agriculture that's a very weird word i looked it up it meant what i thought it meant but for some strange reason look funky there were a number of ways in which scotland's or scottish medicine at this time was distinctly different from that of england and elsewhere in europe the inform Infirmary maintained close ties with the university, which enabled medical students to learn from practical experiences as well as theory. Fortunately, somebody went around digging up bodies for these facilities, but if you want to learn about Burke and I believe it was Hare, uh, look that up. Students in Scotland could study a range of medical subjects within one university, helping to make them general practitioners. They could pick and choose individual classes which interested them rather than necessarily studying a full degree and learning English as the use of Latin was being phased out at Scottish, at Scottish universities. Here's a bit of controversy. 
man midwifery the growth of man midwifery in london in the 18th century has been considered by some as a particularly scottish phenomenon a range of reasons for this have been cited such as the breadth of the scottish medical education their acceptance of midwifery as a subject for university education and the relative exclusion of scots from the acceptance into elite english medical circles with this acting as an impetuous or an impotence impetus it's another word i feel like i know what it means but i haven't seen it spelled like that before in their carving of their own separate niche and depending on which research you do you will see if this is a bad or good idea spoiler alert scots also played a significant role in military medicine in the period the country's physicians and surgeons were part of a particularly high influx into military related at this time military work related at this time explanations for this are wide-ranging including the fact that military related scientific subjects were taught in scottish universities and that those who took part in military service were entitled to practice as surgeons in england without the need for the useful very useful formal certification <laughs> let's talk about marriage at this time what was it like for the domestic on the domestic front marriage in scotland was based on canon law a regular marriage was one for which bans had been called and which was subsequently performed in church by a minister but neither bans nor minister were request requisites 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 there we go a simple exchange of consent to marry per verba de presenti or a promise to marry in future followed by intercourse on the faith of that promise per verba de futuro subsequent copula was enough to bind a couple into an irregular but perfectly legal marriage witnesses were not required how the fuck was this held up in law the lower age limit was 12 for women and 14 for men and parental consent was not a legal requirement in the 17th century fines were prescribed for couples marrying irregularly but the practice continued at that time it was mainly religious dissenters including roman catholics who chose to circumvent the church of england or church of scotland however after the revolution of 1688 to 89 the establishment of presbyterianism forced more than two-thirds of the incumbents of scottish parishes parishes out of their post hundreds of unemployed ministers were seeking other sources of income many of them gravitating to Edinburgh and offering quick and easy marriages and baptisms with few questions asked this is why a lot of people would in those romance novels would always go to scotland to get married because you don't need shit the relationship between husbands and wives in earlier centuries has been discussed by various historians some arguing that an important change occurred during the 18th century 
with marriages based on love and companionship replacing the patriarchal or the purely practical and others claiming that this had been the norm all along there is at any rate enough evidence in the form of letters and diaries to sustain research into this relationship the fact that men resorted to prostitutes is also well understood but there were long-term relationships some resulting in children which were not considered to be marriages and these have received less attention so now we're done with the for the most part early 18th century we're going to get into the late 18th century and the early 19th century where scottish politics were dominated by the whigs and after 1859 their successors the liberal party from the scottish reform act in 1832 which increased the number of scottish mps and significantly widened the franchise to include more of the middle classes until the end of the century they managed to gain a majority of the westminster parliamentary seats for scotland although these were often outnumbered by the much larger number of english and welsh conservatives English educated Scottish peer Lord Aberdeen led a coalition government from 1852 to 1855, but in general, very few Scots held office in the government. From the mid century, there were increasing calls for the home or for home rule for Scotland, and when the Conservative Lord Salisbury became prime minister in 1885 he responded to pressure for more attention to be paid to scottish issues by reviving the post of secretary of state for scotland which had been in abeyance since 1746 he appointed the duke of richmond a wealthy landowner who was both chancellor of aberdeen university and lord lieutenant of ban Banff. towards the end of the century the first Scottish liberal to become prime minister was the Earl of Rosebury. Rosebury. Like Aberdeen, before him, a product of the English education system. In the later 19th century, the issue of Irish home rule led to a split among the liberals, with a minority breaking away from the liberal unionists in 1886. The growing importance of the working classes was marked by Keir Hardy's success in the mid Lanarkshire by election, 1888, leading to the foundation of the Scottish Labour Party, which was absorbed into the Independent Labour Party in 1895, with Hardy as its first leader. The main unit of local government was the parish. And since it was also part of the church, the elders imposed public humiliation for what the locals considered immoral behavior, including fornication, drunkenness, wife beating, cursing, and Sabbath breaking. The main focus was on the poor and the landlords, the lads, and gentry and their servants were not subject to the parish's discipline. The policing system weakened after 1800 and disappeared in mostly all places in the 1850s so scotland went from maybe one of the poorest countries in western europe in 1707 to subsequent wealth due to the free trade within the british empire and together with the 
the Scottish Enlightenment was able to bring themselves out of this, uh, one may say, backwards uh, society and more into modernity. They also, you know, took a lot of enlightenment from Voltaire. He said, we look to Scotland for all our ideas of civilization, uh, which also put them on the front stage. The first major philosopher of the Scottish Enlightenment was Francis Hutchinson, who held the chair of philosophy at the University of Glasgow from 1729 to 1746. One of his major contributions uh, to the world throughout was the thought that the utilitarian and consequentialist principle that virtue is that which provides in his words the greatest happiness for the greatest numbers much of what he believed was incorporated in the scientific method the nature of knowledge evidence experience and causation and some modern attitudes towards the relationship between science and religion were developed by his protégés david hume and adam smith Hume became a major figure in the sceptical, philosophical, and imperious traditions of philosophy. He and other Scottish Enlightenment thinkers developed what we called a, or what he called a science of man, which was expressed historically in works by authors, including James Burnett, Adam Ferguson, Jane, John Miller, and William Robertson, all of whom merged a scientific study of how humans behave in ancient and primitive cultures with a strong awareness of the determining forces of modernity. Indeed, modern sociology largely originated from this movement. Now that we've discussed some of the politics, some of the other economic and domestic situations that were involved in Scotland at this time, let's talk about the black influence in Scotland and in England since there was a time in which both were under the same union and relatively working within the same stratosphere. Even as a confined body of men and women such a large number of black people would have made an enormous impression in such a rural area. But people of African origin weren't entirely unknown in late century or late 18th century Hampshire pockets of black sailors servants and the enslaved could be found in Southampton and Portsmouth by the end of the 18th century the British army was the largest single purchaser purchaser you heard that correctly of enslaved Africans in the Caribbean a total of 6,376 people were brought for immediate military service in the area from 1798 to 1806. During the American Revolutionary War, Africans fleeing captivity were offered their freedom should they join the British Armed Forces, which we are fully aware of. With the collapse of the British campaigns in North America, several thousand black troops, some with their families, fled to British-held territories such as Dublin, Liverpool, and London. Black soldiers were also recruited from those born in British Isles and were found in the ranks of county regiments and foot guards. 
waged and enslaved servants formed the largest group of black workers a black servant often a young page or handmaid was seen as a status symbol adorning the houses of the well-to-do their experiences and legal statuses varied enormously some like john rippon lived comfortably others were displayed as walking talking objects de art wearing silver and brass collars on which was engraved the name and address of whoever had bought their lives a small number rose from servitude often with the help of their former masters to enjoy independent lives prominent among this class were the westminster westminster shopkeeper letterist and composer ignatius sancho the coal merchant and property owner caesar picton in kingston upon thames and the nottingham based george africanus who ran a servant's registry in the city where evidence of the slave trade voyages exists in scotland it is generally uh, through court cases for example four cases involving owners of ships engaged in the slave trade which were heard in the high court of admiralty in scotland are daniel versus graham clark versus inglis horsburg versus bogle and alexander versus calhoun and company the records of the horseberg versus bogle case are important as they give very detailed information about the way in which the slave trade was carried out in the early 18th century there are more than 70 items including financial records witness statements and other legal papers providing evidence of the exports of guinea goods from britain to africa the role of the ship's surgeon as supercargo in purchasing slaves for transportation and his contract with the scottish merchants who backed the venture following the union of parliaments in 1707 scotland gained formal access to the transatlantic slave trade scottish merchants became increasingly involved in the trade and scottish planters especially sugar and tobacco began to settle in the colonies generating much of their wealth through enslaved labor evidence of the acquisition of enslaved individuals from slave traders and other enslavers can be found among the estate and plantation records and the business records of merchants and individuals involved in enslavement once in scotland however many enslaved people were allowed to be baptized and evidence of this should be or would be found in the old parish registers of baptisms at the point of baptism enslaved or former enslaved individuals often took the surnames of their enslavers which should be borne in mind when searching baptismal registers released enslaved people were also allowed to marry and you may find an entry for their marriage in the old parish registers as well not much is known about how former enslaved persons integrated into scottish society how they felt about the about the utilized uh how they felt and utilized their freedom this is because there are very few first-hand accounts in scottish archives left by former enslaved people however some individuals were well known in scotland at their time such as george dale who was transported against his will from africa aged about 11 and ended up in scotland 
After an unusual career as a plantation cook and a crewman on a fighting ship. In 1789, during the time of the French Revolution, another well-known former enslaved person was Sipico Kennedy. He had been brought to Scotland by Captain Andrew Douglas in 1702 from the West Indies, where he had been transported as a young boy from the African West Coast. In 1705, Sipico joined the family of the captain's daughter, who married John Kennedy from Colzine in Ayrshire. And, is, and it was here that Sipico got his surname. He stayed in this family for an initial 20 years, during which time he was baptized and probably also received some education. Through his baptism, Sipico was free according to Scott's law, so that when he decided after 20 years to continue service with his former owner for another 19 years, this was formalized by an indentured servitude. Uh, Or no, it was just formalized by an indenture. I'm starting to get crisscrossed, you can tell, once I start reading for quite some time. (laughs) Little is known about his later life, though he appears once in the Kirk session minutes of Kirkuswad on May the 27th of 1728, accused of fornication with Margaret Gray, whom he later married. We know from references in the old parish registers that they had at least eight children and continued to live in Ayrshire until Sipico's death in 1774. There are many mentions of people of African or Indian descent living in Edinburgh from the late 17th century to the early 19th century. At this time, Scots were heavily involved in the slave trade and the East India Company, and it was fashionable for the rich to have exotic servants, the same as in uh, England. There were certain areas where African Caribbean people used to get together and socialize with one another. One of them was Jack's or Jock's Lodge, where enslaved people were sent as apprentices to learn a trade. As far back as the 1680s, there is mention of an African named man named uh, B- man being baptized on the Cannon Gate, the servant of John Drumlinrig. Malvina Wells, a mixed race woman employed as a lady's maid, was born in Karakou, Granada in 1804. Wells was brought to Edinburgh as a teenager with the McRae family. Her grave is significantly the only known grave in Edinburgh of someone who was born enslaved. She worked in the household of Joanna McRae, other households, and independently until her death at the age of 84. She is buried in the McRae family plot in St. John's Church graveyard. Even though the tumbling Lassie case of 1687 had already declared slavery illegal in Scotland, it is still assumed to be illegal in Scottish, or it is assumed to be legal on Scottish soil. As such, adverts appearing in the papers for both the sale of enslaved people and rewards for the return of runaway slaves can be found. An advert from the Edinburgh Evening Courant dated February 13th of 1727 stated, Runaway on the 7th instant from Dr. Gustavus Brown's lodgings in Glasgow. A Negro woman named Anne being about 18 years of age with a green gown and a brass collar about her neck on which are engraved these words, Gustavus Brown in Dalkeith, his Negro. Now for their beats. For their beats. 
It follows with whoever apprehends her, so as she may be recovered, shall have two guinea reward and necessary charges allowed by Lawrence Dinwiddie, Jr. Merchant in Glasgow, or by James Mitchelson, Jeweler in Edinburgh. It was in the less privileged sections of society that people of African origin may have had the most impact. Francis Gross's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue in 1785 included a number of words and phrases of African origin. Kicker Apu, dead. Bumbo, Bumbo, a woman's private parts, which had entered everyday London English. Intermarriage between black men and women and white Britons was high. Public houses owned by black men could be found across the country. In contrast to plantation societies, membership of the Church of England was not prohibited to Africans. Once in Britain, many sought to join congregations, be baptized, and have access to poor relief funds as they were settled in a parish. Black preachers abounded, and at least one black church was recorded in Whitechapel. In the latter half of the 18th century, England had a black population of around 15,000 people. They lived mostly in major port cities, as we stated earlier london liverpool and bristol but also in market towns and villages across the country the majority worked in domestic service both paid and unpaid not all black people in the latter half of the 18th century were enslaved or employed as servants black people were part of english society working as sailors tradespeople, businessmen and musicians we can find evidence of some of these lives which we will discuss as we wrap up our podcast here the first is joseph emity from 1775 to 1835 he was born in west africa as a child portuguese traders enslaved him they took him to brazil and then to portugal it is unclear where he learned to play violin but whilst in portugal he became a violinist in the lisbon opera in 1795, Emity was forced into service aboard a British Navy ship as a ship's fiddler. Four years later, he was finally discharged in Falmouth, where he earned his living as a violinist and teacher. In 1802, he married Jane Hutchins, a local tradesman's daughter. In 1805, the couple and their daughters moved to Trotoro. Emity remained in Cornwall performing, teaching, and composing, and eventually becoming leader of the Truro Philharmonic Orchestra. He is celebrated as the most influential musical figure in early 19th century Cornwall, and his memorial stone is in the church of or churchyard of Kenwin Church. George Augustus Paul Green Bridge Tower. From 1780 to 1860, another virtuoso violinist is best remembered for his association with Beethoven, who composed the Kreutzer Sonata for him. A child prodigy in 1789, he played at the assembly rooms, uh, which is in Bath. (laughs) Bridge Tower's father was of African descent, and there are several versions of his ancestry, including being the son of an African prince. From the age of 11, George Bridge Tower was first violinist in the Prince of Wales, later George IV's uh, fourth's private orchestra. 
talk about Caesar Picton from 1755 to 1836. He became a successful businessman and owner of a wharf and a malt house, despite being taken from his family in Senegal as a child. At just six years of age, he was transported by ship to England, where he worked as a servant. He later became a coal merchant using bequests left to him by his employers. From 1790, Picton lived at uh, 52 High Street, Kingston-upon-Thames, which is a pretty damn good address, known as Picton House and now marked by a Kingston local history plaque. By 1807, the year of the Abolition Act, he was able to retire and live as a gentleman. He bought a grand house, now also known as Picton House, uh, on 56 High Street, uh, Thames-Dicton. In 1816, the house still uh, has lavish and intact, or he bought the house in 1816. So just know that the house is still has lavish and intact interior plaster work and paneling dating from the 1730s to the 1750s. Both houses can still be seen from the street. A little bit more well-known uh, just for her impact in history, Dido Elizabeth Bell from 1761 to 1804 was the illegitimate daughter of Sir John Lindsay, a Royal Navy officer and a nephew of the first Earl of Mansfield. Her mother was Maria, an enslaved African whom Sir John met whilst his ship was in the Caribbean. Sir John acknowledged, acknowledged Dido as his child and from the 1700s, or from the 1760s, she grew up in Lord Manfield's uh, household with her cousin, Lady Elizabeth Murray. Dido was educated and literate, as well as overseeing the running of the dairy at Kenwood. She helped Lord Mansfield with his legal correspondence. A visitor to the house commented that Dido's great uncle called upon her every minute for this and that and showed the greatest attention to everything she said. By comparing the annual allowance Dido received, it is clear that within the household, her status was higher than that of a servant, but generally below that of the rest of the family. As Lord Chief Justice, Lord Mansfield presided over some of the most historic cases involving enslaved Africans, whose status in English law was uncertain. When he died, he was careful to confirm in his will that Dido was a free woman. He also left her 500 pounds and an annual allowance of 100 pounds. In 1793, Dido married John Davinia, a steward. They had three sons and lived in Pimlico until her death, aged 43. We talked a little bit about George Africanus from 1763 to 1834. He is Nottingham's first recorded black entrepreneur starting a, an employment agency called the Africanus Register of Servants. George was enslaved and brought to England from Sierra Leone at three years of age. He was given a present, given as a present to a wealthy Wolverton Hampton businessman, Benjamin Molyneux. After serving an apprenticeship, apprenticeship as a brass founder in one of the Molyneux's foundries, George moved to Nottingham where he married Esther, a local woman. He went on to own his own home, land, and several businesses, meaning that he was eligible to vote. He died age 71 and is buried at St. Mary's Churchyard, uh, High Pavement in Nottingham Lace Market, where the city, where a city of Nottingham plaque 
commemorates him. Other black women came to Scotland because their white fathers endowed them with inheritances. Uh, Annetta Watson was the illegitimate daughter of slave owner Peter Watson, born in Guyana. She inherited 6,000 pounds when her father died, which is a substantial amount of money, and came to Scotland. First living in Inner Leighton, she then became a music teacher in Glasgow as her inheritance dwindled. Another black Scottish heiress, Margaret McGuffey, McGuffey lived in Wigtown where her father was provost. Her house was called Barbados Villa and her story is told in a biography, The House That Sugar Built by Donna Brewster. The person who intrigued me most in this period is Dorothy Dahl Thomas, known as the Queen of Demerara. Demerara. Oh, Lord, I can't say that word. Demerara, who was a successful businesswoman. She arrived in Glasgow in 1810 in August, looking to educate some of her children and grandchildren in Scotland. Though a slave owner, registers of the period show her owning about 80 people she appears to have stood up for her slaves including one called sally a pregnant black woman who was killed in police custody in Demarara, now ghana good to know that doll was a fascinating figure whose story runs counterintuitively to the common expectations of women of color during the era when she arrived in London, it was said she had a skirt made out of five pound notes and a necklace of golden doubloons. She also lent money to her white son-in-laws when their businesses ran into trouble. She wasn't the only woman of color. Many women of color came to Scotland to study for degrees at universities. One of them was Kessa Valu Nedu, founded South Africans or South Africa's resistance campaign against apartheid in 1946. She served 17 jail terms for her fight against segregationist policies. But she was educated at the University of Edinburgh. After being educated, she returned to South Africa to vote in the first democratic election, but in 17 or 1978 left to escape police harassment, only returning in 1990 after Nelson Mandela was freed I'm just having flashes of The Last King of Scotland which is a great fucking movie uh, you should watch that it's like fucking very good but uh, there's some connective tissue there uh, within you know Scots and African history as well but that is for another day another podcast on focusing more primarily on African history I will go ahead and put in the show notes in case you just want to hear about the African side uh, in Scottish history uh, instead of just knowing all of the other ins and outs. But this has been a pretty informative, fun series to do, learning a lot more about, um, you know, our presence. As I say, I have a little bit of Scottish heritage in me, not a whole bunch, but it is uh, a part of the DNA equation and I want to know more about it and I feel like I've gotten a good grasp on uh, that that historical picture up until the 19th century so once again if you want to send feedback blackercouch.gmail.com my social media will be below until next time peace hair grease and blacker magic <laughs>